This week we'll talk about doing software engineering in academia. And we have a special guest today, Johanna. Johanna has a formal background in psychology and computational neuroscience. And she's now about to complete her PhD in the field of machine learning in clinical neuroimaging. She's joining us from the University of Melbourne, Australia, where she discovered the field of research software engineering. In addition to doing research software engineering in academia, Johanna has contributed to several open source projects, and she is an advocate for open source and open science. Also, Johanna is uh, a very avid listener of this podcast. She once in uh, a LinkedIn comment mentioned that she listened to every single episode of this podcast. <laughs> and uh, I thought I have to invite her to this podcast. And Tulsi, you probably heard in a few recent ones that the questions were prepared by Johanna Bayer, and this is the Johanna that helps uh, too with preparation. So it's a big pleasure to have you here on this podcast. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So before we go into our main topic of doing software engineering in academia, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah, sure. So yeah, as you've already mentioned, so my formal background is uh, psychology and clinical neuroscience and the clinical side more. So I started with a um, bachelor's in psychology, but then back then already my favorite subjects were kind of statistics, the biology subject of psychology. And also I had an elective just what I was about artificial intelligence and the brain. And I found that super interesting. So I already then started also sitting computer science classes while doing psychology. Uh, that was in Bamberg in Germany. I'm German. Um, then I got into a kind of very elite master's in Munich that was taught a psychology and neuroscience. So I continued there in Munich and I also took like classes there, which is in, in the German system. It's quite easy to just do additional stuff compared to the Australian system. Like maybe that's something you want to talk about later. And then I was, when I was in Munich, I applied for this from the Bernstein Center of Computational Neuroscience. They have a program where they give you between your master's and your PhD one year of funding to go to any university that you really like. And I went to the Technical University in Berlin, where I did some modeling for uh, neuroimaging, and then to the uh, Translational Neuro Modeling Unit in Zurich, where I also did some modeling for neuroimaging, like auditory stimuli, like in the brain, basically. And like while I was in Zurich, um, one of my friends forwarded me position that was in Australia and it sounded really cool. So I applied for this position. It was about creating a normative model of the brain and then comparing how people with depression like score under this normative model, which basically is like modeling a biomarker for depression in the brain. And I applied and I got in. I got the position and I basically decided within a week that I would move to Australia. I was there like half a year later because it's like, you know, visa and stuff. And I've been there ever since. So I'm about to finish my PhD. I'm working already as a postdoc in um, predicting um, and profiling uh, depression, anxiety, and schizophrenia, and also like biological kind of features and markers, so brain stuff and uh, but also behavioral stuff. And apart from that, I've done a bit of stuff on the side, like you said, open source projects. I've worked for NASA. I've worked for Math MathWorks, so that's the MATLAB kind of company. I've contributed to open source and been a teaching assistant, and I've led hackathons. And I've continued studying computer science at a German university. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's basically me. Yeah, interesting. And uh, as a teaching assistant, which subjects do you teach? It's open science. So that's also what I do a lot. 
I'm really passionate about this idea to make science more reproducible, which is a huge issue and also relates to our topic, actually, like research software engineering, because um, research software engineering can help to make science more reproducible. Mm -hmm. So as a teaching assistant, you need to help with homework, answer questions from students, right? Yeah, it's actually very funny because it's a, <laughs> I'm a teaching assistant at a university in California, so it's uh -huh. remote. <laughs> But yeah, we have a Slack community, so they get like material from their university. And then I also watch the material, it's on YouTube. And I answer questions and I taught some like subjects, like for example, intro to Git, that was one of them, or like how to contribute to open source projects um, and stuff like that. So a bit of machine learning. Mm -hmm. Any of this is public? Yeah, so the course that they put on is public, yeah. And uh, the teaching stuff, not big, because that's just, you know, in Zoom, face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of like free stuff that you can get into. So this course is also free. You can just apply and get into and then... Mm -hmm. So I'm asking because for the courses we have in Data Talks Club, we assume some familiarity with Git and things like this. So there are some prerequisites. And when people without these prerequisites come to learn, from our courses, it's a bit difficult. So the learning core for them is steeper. Yeah. Some catch up and finish the courses, but some do not, right? Because they need to pick up extra stuff in addition to what we are teaching. And now it's good to know that you teach Git, so we can we know where to send them. Exactly. There's also I just recently completed an instructor course for the carpentries. I don't know whether you've heard about the carpentries, like the software carpentries. They have like a scheduled curriculum for like these very beginner computer science and software programming and soft programming kind of courses. So they also have an intro to Git course. It's very structured and you can take these courses also well, like online. And I'm now basically almost a certified instructor. I need to teach my first course. But um, yeah, these courses, people can just go through them like by themselves. It's open. We can put the link in the show notes. Like mm -hmm. I think that's a really nice uh, beginner's place for, for people to begin because it takes people where they are. Okay. And I'm really curious to know, to ask you now about this open science course. So I know we plan to talk about this a bit later, but since now we're talking about this. Yeah. So in this open science course, what other things students study? What is the curriculum for this one, for this course? Yeah, so the first one was Git. And the next one, so it fits with the, with the topic of the episode, actually. So there's this idea that about the reproducible publication. So the big problem that we're facing in, in academia is kind of a reproducibility crisis. So people put out papers, but then if other people want to reproduce their findings, it's just not possible. Especially my field, like neuroimaging, almost, like, almost died from this community. It's like, we are still recovering because like basically there, there are papers that, that have the title like why all research um, findings up to now are wrong, like stuff like that, you know, like really, really sad, sad things. And um, so there's this idea about the reproducible paper, basically, where you have in stuff like, for example, Markdown um, can write like your paper and then like with your code, basically just send this thing to someone and someone mm -hmm. can from the data from scratch reproduce the paper that you submitted. So how to do that, for example how to put your code on Git, how to write tests. Like it's not very common in academia to write tests to make your code bulletproof. Usually students are not so skilled in like writing programming and, and, and software engineering in general. So like their code is like, yeah, less, less reproducible, like teaching, teaching them like very, sometimes very basic skills. But yeah, that's the idea. 
And how do you teach students to contribute to open source? Like, yeah. do you say, okay, here's an open source project, go contribute, or it's more guided, I guess? Yeah, it's more guided. So I started, of course, like with Git, but then what I like to do and what I think really helps is like if you do Git like in a Zoom session where, where you have like just a very simple repo and you teach people to make pull requests and you like, you know, you accept them and they see what happens, you know, because Git is such an interactive tool and it's so hard to learn it by yourself mm -hmm. so like yeah that's how I, I teach them and then like yeah i, I show them like I, we have a couple of like in my field a couple of repositories that are not as you know big as for example numpy or scikit-learn you know these repositories are massive even like skilled people get like very overwhelmed with how to start but they're like smaller repositories for example one of them is the turing way book it's kind of a book on reproducible research a jupiter book by the Alan Turing Institute. And people can just really easily contribute because it's like a book, you know, you can just contribute text. Uh, yeah, text and then like put some citations. And this is some, usually like something that people from academia are familiar with, you know, like writing a little paragraph and putting some citations. And yeah, that's, that's a very good way for people to start. And usually people are then way less intimidated if I show them these resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty interesting. So, Since the topic today is doing software engineering in academia, I think we more or less uh, started talking about this. I wanted to ask you, what is research software engineering? Like how research and software engineering are connected? Yeah, it's a very good question. And it's actually a very new term. So the, the old ways, basically, as I've already kind of indicated, is that people, you know, they have some data, they make some analysis, they write a paper, and then they forget about the data and all the analysis. Analysis, like in some fields, is done in SPSS, so it's not at all. Like, I don't know whether you know what SPSS is, but like, it's more like a GUI thing where you do like statistical. Uh, it's like Excel, but more powerful, right? It's like a tool yes. from IBM, is it? Yeah. I think I used it in my data mining classes or something like that. Yeah. Because you click a lot, but it's not bad. You know, that the models that are in there are really good, but like you click a lot and then, you, yeah, how would you reproduce that? So this is like a problem. So research software engineering is basically a people who take on doing proper analysis, like they really focus on the methods and on the analysis. And that is one part, but they still focus on publishing papers. And the other part of research software engineering is people who publish software as part of their academic output. So they don't publish papers anymore, but they put a toolbox on GitHub. I think that this can really help because these toolboxes and what they produce, it's really tailored to academia. It's, it's done in a very good way. Yeah, these people are really passionate about the software. I don't say that the other people are not passionate about the analysis, but it is not their main focus. Mm -hmm. These people who publish software as a part of their work in academia, are they PhD students or they are hired specifically to just program the code? No, they're usually PhD students. Like PhD students who, like I, for example, I've published like not a toolbox, but like a method that kind of, corrects for side effect differences. So basically when you collect data at different scanning sites, you have basically differences due to the magnetic field strength in the scanner or like to the vendor of the scanner, like just differences. And like these differences can screw up your analysis. And like I published a tool to correct for these differences. Like it has nothing to do with the outcome of, for example, the differences between like clinical populations and like healthy controls that are usually the kind of topic of my field. It's really about the The method and um, yeah it's usually people from academia and for me it, i always thought like i'm this weird person who is really interested in these 
middle things, like looking at clinical population, not really the topic of my field, but kind of getting there. Um, but then I learned like I'm probably a research software engineer. So I'm just really interested in writing software as my research output. Um, it can also be the other, what you said, like I think this is more and more coming because yeah, people from academia just, they work in their fields and they're forced to write software. And sometimes they're not really, A, not really interested in it. So this can ha also happen and also not really skilled. So it might actually happen that this is coming more and more that hopefully, yeah, software engineers get hired to do these things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you got hired for this position, what was the name for this position? Was it the already research software engineer? No, like I have three papers, three publications for my PhD. And like, still we're talking about like, when we, we talk about it, we talk about the application paper, which is like where I do stuff with clinical populations and a huge data set. And then the methods papers, we call it the methods paper, mm -hmm. but it's really just, it's like writing software. I see. So you yeah. still need to publish papers, right? Yeah, that's the other thing. So that's what um, we are kind of hoping that is also coming that, you know, this like software as research output is more and more hopefully acknowledged as output. So for example, you can now get a DOI, you know, a digital identifier for your software as well. But yeah, you usually, I mean, most people are happy to publish a manual like paper or something like that. It's just like they don't necessarily want to publish in their field anymore. And I'm curious, how do you convince your professor to let you work on software instead of publishing papers? Because I guess many professors are used to only one KPI. This is the number of papers published by their department. And probably like uh, it should be like, I don't know, IA star conferences or whatever, like high impact publications. So how do you go to them and convince that, hey, Doing papers is good, but we also need to publish some software. Yeah, it is very hard. And there are definitely people like PIs that are more willing to do this and some are less willing to do it. So um, I was relatively lucky that my supervisor, we were actually, we ran into this problem and I made it one of my topics. And I'm very happy with it that she let me do this. But I have a really good supervisor. So she's very flexible. But yeah. That's an issue. And um, often people do it in their free time because they're really interested in it, which shouldn't be the case, you know. But I mean, in academia, it's also, <laughs> I don't know whether you know that, but like academia has lots of fluctuations. So like the contracts are very short. So, you know, if you don't like it where you are, you just move. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if you just move, then you have to start your PhD research from scratch. Yeah, that's true. I mean, after that. Mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> yeah. So it's more like bottom-up approach when PhD students approach their supervisors and say, look, like there is this problem in our field. We really need to make our research reproducible. Exactly. Does it happen top-down? Like when professor says, okay, listen, everyone now in our department, we all care about reproducibility. I know some professors, like one at, um, I think, Stanford, who started kind of this whole idea. He definitely does that. Um, but it's less common. And one reason for that is that many like people who are in PI positions, they just didn't grow up with software or like analysis like we do now in general. Mm -hmm. so they're, they're a bit more scared of it. And they have also they have less time, you know, they're not doing the analysis anymore. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a problem. But like on the other hand side, you say like it's a grassroots approach and also like these hackathons that we organized they try to teach people and like pull people in from the bottom 
to apply these principles. What you are talking about reminds me the state of uh, data science like 10, 20 years ago when it just started. And in industry, companies would hire data scientists who are just fresh from academia, like people with PhD, very smart people with PhD in physics, mathematics, and so on. And they would tell them, okay, now there is this data set that we have now. Go figure out how to make it valuable, right? And then it didn't work out. So then companies realized that just hiring academics is not enough. We actually need software engineers. Mm. And now data scientists are usually, it's expected that they know how to program. They know Git, you know, all these reproducibility things. And also we have machine learning engineers, data engineers, right? So all these engineers that help data scientists. Like I got it right. It's similar in a way. Yeah, but I, I think like we are still, yeah, like you said, it's a bit like 10 years ago. So I think we are at the verge and it's inevitable because the digitalization is just everywhere. You know, regardless of which field you're in, even like in humanities or like social scientists, at some point you will have to do analysis and some point someone will ask you to be able to reproduce it. So I think, yeah, it's coming. But it's it's very interesting because I also think like really industry or like also other fields have already solved a lot of the problems that we're still facing. For example, like I attended the machine learning Zoom camp and like <laughs> MLflow, you know, it's great. <laughs> I'd never heard about this before. You know, it's like um, if you don't look out, like or if you don't search yourself as like a scientist, yeah, academia doesn't teach you. The scientist has to take the initiative at the moment. It's not good. It should be more top down, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Do you now use MLflow in your experiments? Yeah, I really like it. Okay. <laughs> it's very useful. <laughs> Why do you think academia is behind? Why nobody is teaching these things? There are many reasons. Like I said, I think like many PIs really didn't grow up, you know, mm-hmm. in their academic career with this. So for them, it, and they're coming from an era where it was really okay if you just published a paper and like burned your analysis, you know, nobody would ever ask you about this. Um, but the other thing is like, that we have this problem that the digitalization of any academic field is there, but the people that work there are actually more interested there in their topic, you know? Someone who does like, I don't know, social sciences or like some humanity field, like they don't want to do analysis. They want to work on whatever, like a social worker, for example. They don't want to deal with t-tests and statistics and modeling. They want to care about people, but they are now forced to do this. And I think that's the problem that people are sometimes a bit reluctant. They're also a bit scared, you know, they work like in a different field and now they're, they're kind of forced to do this. And it's, it can also be scary, you know, you put out work and then you basically give people like everything and they can find errors, you know, they can say like your analysis is wrong. And then you have to retract a paper that you've been working on for a year or something, you know, it can be scary, but in, in the end, I think, yeah, it would bring, it would help academia. Like, yeah, have to enforce reproducibility like throughout yeah and what do you think uh, is still missing what kind of tools like mlflow you want to adopt in academia or you think you should adopt in academia to to solve these problems or at least start solving them yeah tests i've never seen right anyone writing tests it's just not common at all and then like the idea of this reproducible paper i think that would be really good but the problem that i have i'm desperately trying to find a space where to host it because you know if you put it on amazon or whatever like aws you have to pay for it and you have to like for example like i make a figure and i want people to be able to interact with this figure you know that this is 
easily possible. Like in Python, you can do that locally on your computer, like, you know, turn it around and like hover over it and like look at data points. But if I wanted to make this available to other people, I would have to put it somewhere. And then I would probably have to pay for it. Not only like short term, but like long term, because this paper, you know, this will be out for a couple of years and people will still like want to look at this figure. And I think there's no solution. Like I think the universities should provide like some space or some provide this for the researchers basically. Maybe Google Collab could be an alternative. Yeah. Then you have to scroll down all the way like to find this figure to interact with this. So it's not a paper, right? Yeah, it's not a paper. And the idea of this reproducible paper would be that you provide the data as well. So you provide the data, you provide all the scripts and people just click. And then from the raw data, it runs through the analysis and it gives you all the figures. And like being able to put that somewhere, you know, that would be great. So I could just say, take this and you just click a button. And like, you know, people wouldn't have to run a Docker or whatever. Like they would just click a button and it would all come down. And then mm-hmm. in the end, they have this figure. That would be my, that would be great. <laughs> Do you use Python? Yeah. Or R? Do you use R? Both. Both. I remember there was a time when I also used R, was long ago, but I remember that in R Studio there was a way to publish, like you write this in this R markdown, right? And then you publish it to, was it called AirPubs, something like that? Yeah. It's still not interactive, right? It is. I have done that. I did it with one figure. So it basically gets pushed to an instance or something, Mm. but then you can only run this instance for 25 hours per month Uh for free. And then you have to pay. I see. It would be perfect. Yeah. So also that's another problem is of course, like the data that I'm using, it's like imaging data. It's pretty big. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like I, I pushed it to this R instance and this was just one little brain figure that you could, you know, rotate. And it was like already, yeah, it's, it's a big figure. And I was like, okay, this is like one out of, 15 that I have in my paper. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> See, so the things we need to bridge the gap between industry and academia, at least start, is researchers need to learn how to write tests. Then we need to have a way to make papers reproducible. So maybe there should be a tool that is free for researchers. Yeah. Mm, anything else? Uh, I guess like, yeah, the teaching of standard coding practices to all academic fields like there should be like one i don't know introduction to programming or statistics class for everyone because like stuff like you know the proper modularization of code for example how to write a package how to set up an environment these type of things how to write a requirement text uh, file you know stuff like very basic things i think that would be good mm-hmm. how did you learn these things how did it happen to you like i said i was really already very early interested in computer science as well but i think what really brought me to like especially in this open science open source field was the brain hack so that's basically it was actually the, the pandemic so i don't know whether you know but like in australia we had like a massive lockdown like for eight months you were not allowed to go more than five kilometers from your house i mean like two hours outside per day and stuff so I was very isolated I don't have family here so my field hosts this um, hackathon it's like it's it's actually an organization brain hack so it's it's about hackathon for like neuroscience basically and this is like a complete grassroots organization and the way it works is like like a typical hackathon so you basically either you pitch a project or you can join a project 
So I joined and I joined a project. I don't even, oh yeah, I don't remember what it was about, like implementing a canonical correlation in Python, something like that. Yeah. And I really liked the vibe there. I really liked the people. So I decided to write around the, the next one was right around the corner. So I decided to help organizing it. And that really got me into this kind of open science and open source. Yeah, because like, yeah, then you get tasked with like how to create the website for the new event. So like you go to GitHub and like you tweak the part, like the current website, you know, make a copy of the current website and tweak it for the next website. So you learn about a bit about web development and then you see what else is on GitHub and you talk to people who have like all these skills and they teach you. And then I also applied for, so I was uh, for one year, I was secretary of global open science group. Basically, they were looking for people to join them. So that was also at the brain hack. And yeah, so all this basically just started like that. And then I just never stopped. Like I just, you know, <laughs> I joined community after community. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I like it a lot. So for you, it was more like learning by doing rather than just attending a course that teaches you everything that you need to know. Yeah, I think it was also then the other thing, I think I've mentioned that already, like a bit out of necessity. So I would have still, I do actually my um, my computer science degree at the University Hagen. Like that's the one that sends you stuff, you know, because here in Australia, you basically, you pay for every course. So I, I got a scholarship for my PhD and also like a living allowance. But if you want to sit another course, you pay for it. And that's usually quite a sum, similar to American like tuition fees. So it's impossible to just sit another course here. I would have done it, of course. Mm. Yeah, so you just have to get by with what you find on the internet, which is actually a lot. Where, yeah, you can totally have a basically full computer science degree or like, you know, an equivalent <laughs> just from mm -hmm. doing stuff on the internet. So, um, yeah. yeah. You need to have the discipline because in uh, university, if you don't do the courses, you don't get credits. And if you don't get credits, you don't get graduated, right? Yeah. You don't graduate. Yeah. But if you're just doing this studying by yourself, then you have to have the discipline and you don't get the credits, right? So you, that's a different kind of motivation, I guess. It is, yeah. And then the other thing that I then also started is freelancing, you know. Mm -hmm. That also puts a bit of pressure, right? Like <laughs> if you get paid for doing stuff, you should basically better deliver at some point. Mm -hmm. okay. Do you think is, this is what you did is the most effective way of uh, picking up these skills? You know, just starting freelancing and then taking part in hackathons and learn by doing or there are maybe better ways researchers can learn these things yes good question yeah i guess there are better ways and like if you want to learn something and if you are in a country where it's easy just to sit another course i would totally do that because as you said it's like way more structured you have like probably peers that do the same yeah i would totally do that apart from that I don't think it's the worst way. Like, definitely, it's a lot of fun doing it this way, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that we have a question. So the question is, yeah. does anyone revise your code or do you work alone? Do you work alone or there's somebody in your team who you can discuss different things? That's a very good question. And usually in academia, sadly, when you're not in a computer science or like technical field lab usually you work alone yeah so i had a supervisor not the one that i have here but like another one who is um really technically skilled so he basically he has developed this idea about 
the type of model that I use in the brain. So he could help me, like, but he's in, in the Netherlands. But yeah, usually you work alone, which makes it even more necessary that you put your code on GitHub, you know, so that someone can actually have a look at it. You said you're a part of many communities. So I imagine that there are communities where people also care about this topic. If you work alone, then you can put some code to GitHub and then perhaps ask other researchers from these communities to take a look. Does it happen? Yes, it does happen. And it happens especially when you publish your code with your paper. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I get like requests from people that read my paper and they say like, look, your code, I don't understand this part. Can you explain? Mm -hmm. And then you say like, oh yeah, I understand why you don't understand because it maybe wasn't explained that well, you know, in my repo. So, yeah. That's a lot of work on top of what you do, right? So then you, in a typical scenario, you publish a paper, you go to a conference, you talk about this paper, or maybe you have a poster session, right? And then it's two days. And then maybe you get a few emails, you answer to these emails, and then you focus on the next paper. But here, you get uh, comments, okay, I don't understand your code. And it just adds uh, a lot more stuff on your plate, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely often driven by a lot of idealism and like, mm -hmm. you know, trying to make science better, I would say. I mean, it kind of the entire field of academia is probably populated by people who don't do things just for the money and effectiveness because then they would move to industry where they get would get paid way more for, you know, what they're doing. I think that's just the case. Okay. So you just know that it will take more effort and you know that this is for the greater good. So you're willing to put more time into this. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, I, I do enjoy it. I like working on these things. I like collaborating with people. Often it's also, it's quite good, you know, they give you new ideas or new insights or they think like, oh, I saw this in your code and I thought it would be nice to extend it by this. What do you think about this? Can we collaborate? It can also like help you in many ways. And there's definitely studies that show that if you publish your code, there's this really cool page, web page, like papers with code, basically, um, that have like, it's a, it's a collection of papers that mm -hmm. where the code is, shows that these kind of papers, they get more citations they get more recognition so it definitely helps you and also of course it helps you you know if you want to go into a more like software engineering direction further on it of course also helps you if you have like repositories that you can share and showcase yeah yeah i see that there is a comment that uh, i asked a researcher about his code and he never replied and the code was buggy so do you think it <laughs> happens often uh, these situations yeah it does. Well, yeah. at least uh, there is code, right? Which is already a good thing. Yeah, it gets even funnier. So there's also this, there was this thread on GitHub where just like for experiment purposes, like this one researcher, and usually like people add to their manuscripts, like data can be obtained upon request. Mm -hmm. So they asked 250 researchers who had put this statement under their paper for the data. And it like they showcased basically the answers or the replies to you know, this kind of request. And like a couple of them provided the data and for others it was like, yeah, um, the data left uh, our lab with the last PhD student or like we couldn't find the data anymore. <laughs> you know, some just didn't reply. Like it's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> but that's the current state. Uh, I guess there are conferences where 
you have to provide code and data in order to publish their conferences and uh, journals, right? Yes. If you want to apply for grants, it's usually that's kind of a requirement that you adhere to open science principles. Also, like many, many journals, actually, they ask for both the code and the data. So like, yeah, I say it's, it's coming because people are recognizing the issues in the field and it, it's not a good state, right? Like it's, it's what contributed to this um, open science and reproducibility crisis. So okay. maybe you can tell us a few examples of projects where you worked on and uh, how aiding this engineering practices helped. Because from what I understood, you didn't start as a research software engineer. You started like as a usual PhD student. But you had this interest in open source computer science. So maybe you can tell us about one of the projects that you did and then how you realized that you need to start dating these things and how it looked like. So what did you add first? What did you add second? And so on. And how it helped you at the end. Yeah. So I think like a good example is my current and like my oldest PhD project, which is like about the normative model of the the brain basically so i'm working on a very big depression data set it's massive like for for clinical standards so i started and like i went in and i didn't really know like my first issue was how should i organize this like the folder structure so like i found for example cookie cookie cutter which is kind of a repository they have like example folder structures for different fields so like you can go there and it creates one so that was very helpful so you do that and create an environment, for example, for your code that helps. Then, of course, like Git, if you push stuff on Git, that is also actually a principle that I learned. So you have at least two branches. One is like a main branch. The other one is a dev branch. And you never push like new stuff to the main branch. But like, you know, you push it to the dev branch. And just like very simple things. And what else did I do? Like, yeah, then uh, code formatting standards. So like, of course, there are tools that do that. In R, you can just click like format my code. But there's like... Flake, Flake 8, and I think Black is the one in Python that you can use. Mm -hmm. What else? Then, yeah, like uh, version control, like for example, like, yeah, for your models, MO flow. And then, of course, also like just reading, reading a lot of good code. <laughs> mm -hmm. I also have to say, like, I really at the beginning, I probably deleted my all my experience and redid them from scratch like three times <laughs> mm. <laughs> because it was just so messy <laughs> yeah but that's just yeah how it is but in the end yeah now i'm kind of at a stage where when i start like a project i know what to do i know how to set it up i know how to keep things clean and like yeah mm. getting there yeah so you didn't start this project knowing that you need to add all these best practices right so for you you no, realize no. it while working on the project, like one when you, I guess, deleted your experiments for the first time, you thought, okay, like, how do I make sure that it doesn't happen? Yeah. So it was definitely a learning process. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like I said, it, it's kind of just academia where you figure things out. <laughs> yeah. I remember from my master thesis, I don't know how representative it is, but usually the way I organize exploratory data analysis for many ad hoc tasks is quite messy. Like, I have a ton of notebooks. They have very cryptic names. And then I know that I need to push them to Git, but sometimes there are tokens, um, sensitive information that I don't want to push. I need to clean them. Yes. And then so they stay without being pushed to Git and then something happens, like the file gets corrupted for whatever reasons, and then the notebook is lost. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> so I guess you had to solve this, right? And then yes. this is how you discovered all this. 
best practices. Yeah, so um, it's also like usually in academia, often like at least in my field, like you have data that is sensitive, so you just can't put any data to like any open repository here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but you can like stay, you can put metadata, you know, like or like parameters that from your models that you fitted, you know, they are quite, yeah, they're not very, they're non-specific, right? Like any whatever mean of whatever. For your project, you you mentioned that the data is about depression, which mm-hmm. can be quite sensitive, right? Can you publish this data, or you cannot? No. So the data is from a um, consortium. You can get access to the data if you write a proposal. But no, I wouldn't be able to publish the data, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you need to submit a paper based on this data somewhere to Open Science Conference, how do you do this? Yeah, I mean, you can present like figures, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. you can present the mean of whatever. So uh, my research is about the thickness of the cortex. So that's what I focus on. Like the thickness of the cortex is like smaller in people with depression or not. So you can provide like a mean or like you can also, you know, provide like uh de-identified data mm-hmm. like you know people yeah it's just some depressed brain <laughs> that's that you talk about you know like of course no personal data mm-hmm. but i even i don't have that data you know i don't have this information i mean there are some data that's definitely about this but like for my data it's part of this consortium and you need to write a proposal so not everybody can have this data yeah interesting when it comes to healthcare data it's always tricky right yeah So the results, you always need to take extra care when you deal with this data. Okay. And uh, from what uh, you said, it looked like the easiest way to get the skills is to take part in hackathons, contribute to open source and also freelance. Yeah. How often do you actually do this? At the moment, so less often than I would like to because I work basically full-time already as a a research fellow i've tried to finish my phd like in the hours before and after that during the day but like as i i uh, just recently contributed to a code sprint of this kind of touring way repository that i it's just like very it's a very nice community and like that's the good thing about living in australia is like all stuff that happens during the day in europe happens like during the evening here so like you know can you can do stuff after work so i think like at least once or twice per month usually like yeah there's just a lot of things that i contribute to or like that i yeah I'm, i'm almost daily on git like just looking for new stuff and uh yeah i'm in a lot of communities where they also always bring up new stuff or like things that yeah you can contribute to or like you know where they look for people to give a talk yeah so you made it a part of your daily routine checking github yeah I check the trending repositories and I check the, like, I love the awesome lists. Like, I love them. <laughs> yeah, I think when I asked you, how did you find out about uh, Data Talks Club community? You said you found a trending GitHub repo from our course, right? Yeah, it was from the course. Yeah, I think it was the ML Zoom Camp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably ML Ops Zoom Camp, right? The one with ML4. That was the one, yeah. Cool. So actually, there are people who check trending. Yes, yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, I, I love GitHub. Yeah. So instead of checking Twitter or LinkedIn or like this is the two social networks I check, you come from work or maybe at the beginning of your working day, you go to Git and you check the trending repos. 
No, I have the GitHub app. Uh-huh. Like I have it on my phone. And I also check, actually, I check Twitter, LinkedIn, Mastodon, Slack. I think that is my, and GitHub. Mm-hmm. And what kind of communities are you part of? So one of them is the, like, the Carpentries that I already told you, mm-hmm. like this software teaching program. Then the um, research software engineering communities, we have an Australian chapter, but there's also a global chapter and like a, Basically, there's also a German chapter and a um, UK chapter. My open science community, datatalks.club, of course. <laughs> then there's another podcast, I think it's called MLOps podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm also in that, but I'm not, very, I'm not very active in that one. Kaggle, that's also one. They also have, like a, I think, a very inofficial Slack channel. Kaggle Loops or something like that, right? Yes. What else? Then I like just a couple of more like sciencey Slack channels. So for example, I do, I work on physiological noise correction for fMRI. So we have like a Slack channel there. Then my teaching course. And then the, the Alan Turing Institute. Mm-hmm. That's also a really good one. Yeah. That's quite a lot of different things. Yeah. And then the other one is like the, the one where I worked for NASA. So I developed a curriculum on open science for NASA. And we have like also a, a Slack channel where we continue this work. So let's say in one of these communities or in GitHub trending, you come across a Git repo that is interesting for you, right? And you want to contribute. What happens next? So yeah, usually I look at like, first of all, the readme, then the contributing. Then it depends kind of how big the repo is. So like if it's like a smaller repo, you know, it can be like a repo where they it's like really with like structured in releases, then it's usually quite well organized, but also quite big. In smaller repos, I always look at the dev branch because that's usually where the more interesting stuff happens. Then I um I would probably look at documentation that they have, like often like um, so I've like one of the repos that I'm kind of preparing to contribute to at the moment is Kick It Learn. And they have a really nice yeah, intro for new developers. So basically they guide you. They also show you know, you know, what coding principles you should adhere to, um, how to format your code, like what tests to run, stuff like that. So I would look at that. And then of course you look at the issues, you know, you look at stuff that is needs to be done. And download the repo and like look, look whether you can give this a fix. Um, it's also always good to actually talk to the people. So, you know, if you see someone like that has, who has opened an issue, you can just talk to them saying like, so what did you think about this? Like, how should, should we approach this? I would be really interested. Like, are you already working on this? I mean, Git is a very collaborative tool, right? Like it's, it's made to get in touch with people. Mm-hmm. And it seems this uh, documentation from Scikit-Learn <laughs> is helpful in general, not just for contributing to Scikit-Learn, right? Yeah, it's very helpful. But also they have like a really nice, they have a section like, that kind of guides new developers. So like really how they want contributions to look like. Do you have your own open source projects? So I have my paper that I published and I'm just about to launch a blog actually, mm-hmm. where I'm going to write about open science things and of course like yeah it's a github repository probably mm-hmm. that's the easiest way to start a blog these days right exactly because <laughs> it's free exactly apart from that like yeah like i said at the moment a lot of my time is actually spent on my work 
And that, that, I mean, that's the good thing about academia is that you work on stuff that is very easily converted into an open science project. It's meant to be this way. Like, it's a good thing if you do this, if you add open science on, on top of it. Like, if you do an analysis for a paper and then you, if you then go to your professor or whatever and say, like, I would really like to put this code on GitHub, we would make sure that it's all, like, uh, sensitive information is removed. Like, would you mind that? They probably wouldn't say no. Like, you know, if you just say, I do this, I take care of this, they wouldn't say no. So, um, yes, it's, I think it's quite easy. And I think that like, academia is also really nice because it provides you with a very structured approach to projects. I've heard like for many people in the industry, it's quite hard to have like a portfolio or something, you know, projects that you can showcase. Like academia works this in this way. You start with some data, you do something about it, you publish it. And I guess in academia, the reason people are in academia is to do research and then share it with the world. Yeah. So there is no reason a professor would say, no, you shouldn't publish the code. Because that's the reason you are in academia is to share what you do with the rest of the world. While in industry, there could be things like, okay, like it's actually giving us a competitive edge. We don't want to share it because the, our competitors will take our code and use it and get more money than we, right? Yeah. In academia, it doesn't exist, does it? There are definitely arguments where people say, you know, if I put this on GitHub, I get scooped. Mm-hmm. No, I shouldn't say that. I haven't experienced that from people in academia. What I have experienced is like I worked at a startup where like indeed I was asked whether I could just use some code from my one of my supervisors. And I said like, no. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a no-brainer because this code is A, not mine and B, under like license that wouldn't allow this. You know, it's an absolute no-brainer. But then this person just said like, yeah, you know, this happens all the time. We just rewrite it. And like, you know, different language or like, you know, nobody. No. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't happen, but it's a danger. But like, I think it's more, it's really like more on the, this is like not the um, rule. Like people, usually people are, they would rather approach you to collaborate, I think. Mm-hmm. So it seems like uh, it's a new topic, but there are already courses, like I mean, open science and uh, research software engineering. Yeah. Are there already books about this topic that you can recommend? Books? Not yet. Uh, I'm actually, I'm thinking about writing one. (laughs) Okay. But like, yeah, definitely the Alan Turing um, book is about open science. And what else? There are definitely papers, a couple of papers um, about it. Yeah, I think that's it mostly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But is there something you would recommend anyways? Like maybe not related to this particular yeah. topic but in general maybe you have any good book recommendations or other resource recommendations yeah um it's very funny because i of course knew this question would come because i was the one who like suggested to have this question <laughs> yeah so um what i also do is i'm in a discord channel from pact the publisher and they sometimes give uh books that are not about to be published to people to read it Mm-hmm. So I kind of am part of this channel. And like one of them is the Machine Learning Solutions Architect Handbook. I was one of the people who read this book. It's really good. It's pretty comprehensive, like I think like 800 pages. But it also has like hands-on exercises, which I really like after each chapter. And yeah, I would recommend that. I really like the book. 800 pages. Yeah, it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, it's pretty big. Uh. Yeah, I, I got the ebook, of course, like the e version. 
So what does the table of contents look like there? What are the topics they cover? Uh, so yeah, everything about machine learning, but then also like how to set it up on AWS. And yeah, it's a pretty good book. I had one month, I actually didn't read all of it. I still need to go through the rest because it was just so much. <laughs> yeah. I recommended it for publication though, because it's really good. Yeah. It's business use cases for machine learning, the science yeah. tools and infrastructure platform for ML, ML algorithms, data management, open source machine learning libraries, Kubernetes. Yeah, quite. And uh, I'm just starting. Like, <laughs> There's so much stuff. Yeah, it's really big. Yeah. Okay. Did I forget to ask you anything that you wanted to talk about? No, I don't think so. We covered everything, right? We covered everything, yeah. It's really, really cool. Um, the time flew by, like, really, really interesting, yeah. Yeah, Johanna, thanks for joining us today. That was fun talking to you. Yeah, okay. Uh, it seemed like you enjoyed it. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting, yeah. So you said you will not listen to this when it's published. Oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> there <laughs> will be a transcript. You can just read. The yeah, I can just read what I, and then like, thinking, oh, did I really say this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. thanks for joining us today. Thanks everyone also for joining us today, for asking. Have a great uh, weekend, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.